What do Nordstrom, Whole Foods, H&M, Abercrombie & Fitch, Gap, and Crate & Barrel have in common? Care to guess? They all have left or are leaving San Francisco. Are we in a low, the lowest of the low right now for the San Francisco Bay yes. Area? Wow. Yes, we are. You didn't even stutter. Um, no, I can't think of any period in the city's history when it has been this slow. Well, that's a good point because that city that you're remembering from that song by Journey is as gone as Tony Bennett's I Left My Heart in San Francisco yeah. or if you're coming if you're going to San Francisco. That <laughs> city doesn't exist. San Franciscans have always had a rivalry with New York that New Yorkers are completely unaware of. Began to talk about San Francisco surpassing New York and becoming the new Rome of the Pacific because they imagined wow. that the entire Pacific, not just California and the West, would be tributary to San Francisco, especially once they got Hawaii and can start exploiting that for sugar and pineapples and an ever-expanding band. I was going to have a chapter on the forests because the forests all over California were sacrificed to build San Francisco. Really, uh, you know, its ruling class was Republican. That San Francisco's changed. ruling class was Republican? Absolutely. I would say, however, that the, you know, the original sin was the closing of the state mental institutions in, well, it's 1967 to 72, when Governor Reagan began closing the state mental institutions. One last thing. Yeah. Those families had an investment in the city, but they had a sense of place. This was their city. Yeah. And they did a lot to build it up. Um, the big one of the big changes that's happened with tech is the tech bros who come up from Silicon Valley and with their incredible wealth, they don't have an investment in the place. They can live anywhere. They also have, they're very ahistorical, which is why I'm so glad you're doing this show. So yeah. what's happened is that the poor concentrate in United Nations Plaza. You yeah. see open air drug dealing, shooting, defecating. Uh, just incredible disorder. And it's an extraordinary rebuke of the idealism of Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt and of the United Nations at that time that it's come to this. Did you know that after the United Nations was founded in San Francisco in 1945, San Franciscans believed that their city would become the headquarters of the UN, that it would be the Geneva of the Pacific. But thanks to the influence of the Rockefellers, the UN was instead established in New York City. When I lived in San Francisco back in the 1990s, people used to joke and call San Francisco's UN Plaza, Urim Plaza. It was funny then, but it's not funny now. Now that San Francisco is suffering. Hey there, News Peelers. Today is June 23rd, 2023, and this is Adele, your host at the History Behind News podcast. Aren't you tired of the repetitive news on TV and social media? They just go over the same dramatized developments all day long. Do you ever wonder what happened before our news? I mean, how do we get here? They say if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. So while others cover the news, I uncover its history. I call this peeling the history behind news, 
which we accomplish in weekly conversations with distinguished scholars who delve deep into history to give us their fascinating perspectives from our past. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars, enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink or both and let's get into it. Last month, a New York Times article about San Francisco caught my attention. Not just because I used to live there, but because it featured the picture of a car in San Francisco that displayed the following note on its window. Quote, nothing inside car or trunk. Unquote. Sadly, this is very similar to the warning signs that I saw in San Francisco less than two years ago when I took my family up there on vacation. For the artwork of this episode, I've added one picture that I took back then. The picture is not exactly Ansel Adams' quality, but it conveys what I'm trying to tell you here. The warning reads as such, safety alert, discourage, smash and grab. Then it details how one should secure the vehicle, keep items out of sight and take electronics out of the car, etc. Let's get back to Nordstrom and Whole Foods. I guess more than Whole Foods, Nordstrom's closure really shocked me because it was a landmark, because we used to go visit. I know families that used to get dressed up, and go to San Francisco to visit Nordstrom, spending the day there and the shops and restaurants around there. It was a big deal. And now it's gone. But it's more than just retail stores, way more. As my guest Dr. Gray Bricken tells it, one-third of all offices in downtown San Francisco are now vacant. Back in April, the Wall Street Journal ran an article with the following ominous headline, quote, Fire Sale, $300 million San Francisco Office Tower, mostly empty, open to offers, unquote. And according to the Wall Street Journal, the case of San Francisco has been one of the slowest returns to in-person work in the country. So, how does a city that is home to some of the richest Americans, literally billions being made by tech startups, fall so much? Dr. Brecken points out three issues about San Francisco. The first one is conspicuous for everyone to see and that is poverty. The second one is lack of civic leadership, which, although less visible, is certainly palpable. And the third is that San Francisco is the favorite punching bag of the far right, so its problems are often blasted on national media. But as he will explain, San Francisco's problems are not unique. Rather, they are a microcosm of our country. Dr. Brecken is an historical geographer and author whose chief interests are the state of California the environmental impact of cities upon their hinterlands, and the invisible landscape of New Deal public works. He's currently a visiting scholar in the UC Berkeley Department of Geography and founder and project scholar of the Living New Deal. Dr. Brecken is a San Francisco Bay Area local and in the 1980s worked as a journalist and TV producer in San Francisco. He's the author of Imperial San Francisco, Urban Power, Earthly Ruin, a book that we discuss in this episode. To learn more about Dr. Brecken, you can visit his homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode, where I've also dropped a link for The Living New Deal, his project. So, stay with me as Dr. Brecken and I peel the history behind this news. Dr. Brecken, it's a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Well, thank you. 
I want us to go back in time to San Francisco's beginning. Why did San Francisco become California's big city during the 19th century? I don't know. Why not Monterey or, or, or Eureka or, let's say, Los Angeles? Oh, it's not just California's big city. It's the biggest city in the West. Wow, the biggest city in the Okay, wow. Absolutely. Um, and it's because of its natural advantage. You know, the only other city that can really compare with it, I think, is New York City or maybe New Orleans. They have natural advantages. And San Francisco has the advantage of what was then a 700-square-mile bay, which is um, constricted by its entry, which is the mile-wide Golden Gate. And that opens up via rivers into the great central valley and the sierra nevada so it's an absolutely natural place to put a great city with the ocean on one side and water transportation into an incredibly rich hinterland in the center as i say the only other city i can think of really is new york city um with its access to upstate new york and ultimately to the midwest via the erie canal um, because of the Hudson River. Yeah, um, that's a big comparison. San Franciscans have always had a rivalry with New York that New Yorkers are completely unaware of. Um, and, <laughs> you know, but it, it's it's kind of valid because um, their physical positions and their access to a hinterland are so similar So let's fast forward a little bit. Um, yep. Let's say it's now 1920, right? We talked about the eight, 19th century. Now it's 1920, past World War One. At this point, what city in the U.S. would San Francisco compare to? Well, that's an interesting date because by 1920, San Francisco has fallen out of the top 10. Prior to that... That's a big it, drop. Okay. Yeah. Uh, prior to that... Um, in the late 19th century, it was comparable to some of the larger cities in the Midwest and in the East, not to New York City or Philadelphia. It's way behind that. But it's in the top 10. And by 1920, it's falling behind. And I think that's largely because of the catastrophe of 1906, the earthquake and fire, and then also and the graft trials that came after that that blackened its eye. Um, but it's also because at that point, Los Angeles is starting to leap ahead of San Francisco as the leading city on the West Coast, largely based on the fact that L.A. is floating on a sea of hydrocarbons. There's a tremendous pool of oil underneath it, but also because of um, the climate and uh, improved transportation that were drawing millions of people to Southern California at that time. So it leaps ahead as San Francisco starts falling behind. For the record, I live in Southern California now, and I miss the climate in Northern California. I miss the fog. So, but but I guess you know what you said proves the point because I now live in Southern California. Um, culturally speaking, again going back to 1920, what city would San Francisco compare to? We talked about size and you know economics and culturally speaking. Is there was there anything special about San Francisco in the 19th century or the early 20th century? Well, it would compare with um, 
with Chicago, um, which what, culminates. What, what time period are you speaking about? Well, in the mid um, the mid twentieth century, early twentieth century, mid twentieth century, because so much money had been made, a lot of it had been plowed into the cultural institutions of San Francisco. It's interesting that San Francisco has always been a theater and um, uh, performing arts town. Yeah. That, uh, with the exception of photography, in which it's always been in the forefront, um, it hasn't really been a literary or an arts town, which is not to downplay the people who were here that did that. But as far as a world-class city, it's performing arts and photography. As far as literary, wasn't Steinbeck from the area? Not the city no, itself. Steinbeck is from a Monterey, Salinas Valley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, not, not the city itself. Mark Twain, of course, was here. Exactly. The, the Golden Silver Rush. Throughout the 19th century and early 20th century, was San Francisco's geographical constraint an issue? It's on a peninsula. You can't expand. It's not like Los Angeles where you can just sprawl on and on, right? Yeah, that has always been a problem. Um, and it has resulted in something um, that is unique in the West. That is, it's the only Western city that has row houses. And that's because the constriction uh, surrounded on three sides by water yeah. um, means that it can't grow except up. And so um, it's been hampered in its growth. It tried to fill in the bay to create more land, but it was only partially successful there. It, it's interesting, it almost immediately wiped out its very reason for being, which was Yerba Buena Cove, which is yeah. where the ship came in, and they're underneath the financial district now. But uh, that means that... Oh, wow, way, that's why it's called it Yerba Buena Gardens now. Oh, I see, I see. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, Yerba Buena was the name of the of the, the original name of the Mexican Pueblo yeah. that San Francisco supplanted. Um, so what happens is, when San Francisco suddenly appears with the gold rush, um, it appears in a location which is, well, in in a state, in a region, which was an unplundered treasure chest. And it immediately set about plundering that in order to build itself. For example, the, the, the extraordinary old growth redwood trees, which at that time were around San Francisco Bay. Now there's only a tiny fraction left. The largest and oldest of them were probably in the Oakland Hills, right across San Francisco Bay from San Francisco. And uh, they were gone by 1855. We have no visual record of them. Oh, we only wow. have the record of their stumps. So they were fed into the maw of San Francisco. And then they began plundering the fish, the whales, of course, the gold, mercury, uh, which was down near San Jose. Um, but all of that cash and credit was centered in San Francisco. And the people who became lastingly rich uh, were those not who made money in the gold rush, but who got in on the ground floor and got the land and converted it into real estate. They became lastingly dynastically rich. Some of those families are still around living in Pacific Heights and on Knob Hill, the most desirable places in San Francisco. Yeah, I love Pacific Heights. Um I want to speak with you about um, those families specifically, and I have a question lined up to do that. But before I go there, 
you mentioned performing arts, uh, and I want to go on a tangent from that and ask you this: um, how did how did San Francisco become known as a liberal city? What's the what are the roots of that? Is it because of support of entry or what? Well, I think that has a lot to do with it. Um, that it is a port city, like Hamburg, for example, Venice, and and port cities generally are places where anything goes. You've got a yeah. lot of um, horny single men, um, <laughs> and, you know. Uh, so services are provided for them, yeah. and they like to get to know each other as well, too. So yeah. you know, it's it's that, and then it was right. From the beginning, because it also, and this has been largely forgotten, it was a manufacturing town. It isn't anymore, but it was in the 19th century. Ironworks, for example. Um, and so it was a strong union town. And although the unions tended to be quite racist, at the same point, uh, they were quite progressive. And so uh, San Francisco is a strong union town, whereas Los Angeles is not. Los Angeles tends to be, because of the Los Angeles time, uh, an open shop town. So you have that combination. Although, really, uh, you know, its ruling class was Republican. That San Francisco's to... ruling class was Republican? Absolutely. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, wow. no, no, no. I mean, San Francisco was a moderately Republican town up until the 60s and the 70s. When you started getting this influx of hippies and gays and other, and the the politics then changes drastically and becomes what people now think of San Francisco as being the modern, I mean, the progressive city that it is today. But that's relatively recent. I want to just get clarify something. The gold rush uh, in San Francisco uh, happened in the late 1840s. The Whidbey discovery of gold is 1848. Um, okay. Marshall's discovery. Actually, the United States already knew there was gold and much else in California at least six years before that. It's probably why the Mexican-American War was fought in order to acquire California and much else besides. But yes, there was uh, the, the discovery of gold was announced in late 1848, and the gold rush followed in the following years. Tens of thousands of people, mostly men, poured into California in order to get the gold. In the process, they raised the value of the land on that the tip of that peninsula, the Golden Gate, that became San Francisco. And the gold, the gold itself was not in San Francisco. San Francisco became became like the site for servicing the gold that was in the Sierras. Am I uh, recounting this story correctly? Yes, the Sierra Nevada is a mountain range about 400 miles long um, that is about, oh, 150 miles to the east of San Francisco. Mm -hmm. But it's reachable by the rivers um, from San Francisco that extend into the Central Valley. From there, they could get off the riverboats and go up into the Sierra looking for gold. And they were looking for placer gold. Uh, that was gold that was in the streams. There was a lot of it. But there were also so many men uh, rooting for it, like hogs, as one of the observers said, <laughs> that by 1855, it looked like it was running out. And that's when San Francisco has its first crash. Oh, wow. Because it looked like the gold was running out. It wasn't. You just had to, 
push technology to uh, get the gold that wasn't easily available in the riverbeds. Uh, you had to work harder, so to speak, dig deeper. Um, you certainly did. Let's take a break here. We'll be right back to talk about San Francisco's highs and lows. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Dr. Brecken, I want to talk to you about San Francisco's highs and lows. Let's start with the highs. When would you say was or is San Francisco's golden age? Well, I would say it was the Silver Age, actually, because people paid too much attention to the gold rush. And it was running out. It looked like it was running out by 1855. So there's a crash. In 1859, news comes across from the other side of the Sierra that silver has been discovered in what becomes known as the Comstock Lode under oh, yeah. and an enormous amount of gold, and but particularly silver, came out of that. That's why Nevada is called the Silver State. But that silver and gold flowed down to San Francisco and largely built the city in the uh, late 19th century in order to exploit it, because it was a very difficult deposit to exploit. Um, the San Francisco Mining Exchange was set up in 1862. And it becomes, some people have called it the first modern mining exchange because um, it was it persuaded small investors to put their money into the stock market in the hopes of making a big win. Very few of them did. But what it really did was to fertilize the soil and draw more people to San Francisco. So that's the silver period. Okay. There are several depressions that followed that because the silver began running out in 1878. The Spanish-American and Philippine-American War in 1898 and the acquisition of Hawaii in 1898 was very good for San Francisco. In what um, sense? So that, well, because the military comes to the Bay. It had already been there. Um, the military has always been important to the Bay Area. Um, and it really stimulated business. And then the business leaders began to talk about San Francisco surpassing New York and becoming the new Rome of the Pacific because they imagined wow. that the entire Pacific, not just California and the West, would be tributary to San Francisco, especially once they got Hawaii and can start exploiting that for sugar and pineapples. Um, wow, well, so that, that is fascinating. So we're talking about 1898 or like 1900, right? That is really important for San Francisco. And they're thinking that San Francisco is going to be the new Rome of the Pacific. Oh, yes. Yes. Wow, talk so about find, ambitions and aspirations. Okay. You find belligerent monuments, bronze monuments in San Francisco celebrating the conquest of the Philippines um, and uh, 
various other things as well, too. So that must be a high point of the city, right? Well, I mean, it's a high, yeah, it's a high point for the city's economy. Yeah. Um, and then you have the earthquake and fire of 1906, in which about half of San Francisco, and that being the most important part, is simply wiped out in three days. Um, and so that holds San Francisco back. In 1912, in anticipation of the great 1915 World's Fair, which was another high point, San Francisco looks to New York and tries to adopt um, a similar borough system by incorporating Oakland, Berkeley, and possibly more into greater San Francisco. That's put to a state vote, and it's voted down in 1912 because of the opposition of Berkeley and Oakland. And that was the great missed opportunity because had that passed- For San Francisco or for Oakland and Berkeley? Uh, yeah. That was the missed opportunity for San Francisco yeah. and the Bay Area, I'd say. Yeah. Because if that had passed, San Francisco would have a coordinated planning and transportation system like New York City does. Yeah. And yeah. it doesn't. It's it doesn't, no. Yeah. No, not at all. Um, the World's Fair in 1915 was a very high point, but really important was the mayorality of James- um, James Rolfe, Sonny Jim Rolfe. Every great city, I think, has a great mayor, and Rolfe was it. He was mayor from 1912 to 1932 when he became governor of California. Rolfe was an inspirational character, great orator. People loved him. He brought the city together. And so much of what's wonderful about San Francisco was built under Mayor Rolfe's um, mayorality. Of course, it's just before the Great Depression as well, too. And then you had this great architect, Timothy Pfluger, who I think was a real civic imaginary who has been largely forgotten, but left us some of our finest buildings of the time. Um, if I may just um, interrupt you for a moment, please, Dr. Sure. Brecken. I know about James Rolfe. Um, what I'm wondering is, why is it that we don't have any big boulevards, streets named after him in San Francisco? Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't. I just don't recall. Right? Do we? You're absolutely right. And I wonder why. Yeah. Well, San Francisco forgets its history. I mean, it's very selective in its memory. And so there should be a monument. Well, no, I'm wrong. Um, the San Francisco City Hall, which is absolutely magnificent. It really is. In comparison with its models in, in France, is the James Rolfe City Hall. That's its formal name. Oh, I did not know that. Yes. For, for our audience, when Mayor Brown um, was sort of retrofitting the San Francisco City Hall, what did they call it? Taj Willie? That's <laughs> that right. Was... <laughs> yes, I forgot that. that was, what, 1990s. Uh, my cousin actually got married in the City Hall. Just beautiful, magnificent. So, okay, that's the reference. So that's the reference to Rolf. Okay, I get it. Yes, so sir. that would but mean... you know, Adele, I'm also the other person who has been largely forgotten is the architect timothy pfluger who as i said was an urban visionary yeah and i'm trying to get a, a memorial to timothy pfluger now because most san franciscans have never heard of him i had not heard of him either until today mm -hmm. as i'm speaking with you um going forward in san francisco's history what is another high point 
Uh, is it after World War II, where all the military installations are there? Is it, I don't know, uh, when Silicon Valley comes to town just south of the city? When is it? Do we have other high points? Well, I think World War II was very good for the city's economy, um, as was the Spanish-American War. <clears throat> and then the founding of the United Nations in San Francisco in 1945 momentarily made San Franciscans believe that it was going to be the UN headquarters, um, that it would be a kind of Geneva of the Pacific. Um, that didn't happen because the wow. Rockefellers pulled the UN back to Manhattan, where they wanted it to be. But yeah. there was great prosperity in the post-war period, which many people look back to with great nostalgia. The... Um, the late 70s was a very dark period because you have the arrival of AIDS, which devastated so much of the city's population, and um, the assassination of Mayor um, Moscone and Supervisor Milk. That was a really dark period in San Francisco's history. Yeah. Then in the 80s, major businesses begin to pull out. The headquarters begin to pull out or be um, swallowed up by large companies. You have the, up until that time, you'd had family-run department stores. And the owners of those department stores were civic leaders. They disappeared. The law firms start disappearing. The big banks, like Bank of America and Wells Fargo, they move out, although Wells Fargo's only recently moved out. And that's not looking good until Silicon Valley comes to town and actually consumes and subsumes San Francisco. And that looked really good for a while um, because San Francisco was the center <laughs> of innovation. Yeah. Until it wasn't anymore. And that's happened in the last few years, especially with the arrival of COVID. I, I laughed when you said that looked good for a while because um, I think I know where you're going. Um, are we... I'm just going to go to it. Are we in a low... The lowest of the low right now for the San Francisco Bay yes. Area. Wow. Yes, we are. You didn't even stutter. Um, no, I can't think of any period in the city's history um, when it has been this low. But I, I want to say that, you know, San Francisco is a favored punching bag for the far right because of its liberal politics. Yeah. But its problems are to a large extent a microcosm of those of the United States. I want to stress that. Much of how what's so, happened. How so? Well, one thing that the that technology in Silicon Valley did for San Francisco was jack up the price of real estate to astronomical levels. Because yeah. the people who had made these gigantic fortunes in technology in Silicon Valley, they didn't want to live there. It's, you know, it's the big snooze. They wanted all that <laughs> a big city had to offer, and the nearest one was San Francisco. So they moved up, bought up a great deal of the real estate, making it impossible for the middle class to live there and pushing down the poor often onto the streets, which is, you know, such a big problem now. Much of this has to do with, you know, the, the enormous wealth that flooded San Francisco, which looked good to some. To me, it looked terrible. It was obscene because you had obscene levels of um, wealth and consumption and equally obscene, perhaps even greater um, obscene, um, poverty 
And that's what's causing so much trouble in San Francisco now is the drug addiction and the poverty that's so available um, uh, visible on the street. Now, the wealthy thought that they could um, escape it by living in safe neighborhoods like Pacific Heights uh, yeah. or areas south of market. But the recent um, the recent stabbing of the tech uh, mogul uh, Bob Lee south of market and then mm -hmm. the break-in and bludgeoning of Nancy Pelosi's husband in the heart of Pacific Heights has shown that that's not true. And so uh, the wealthy are finding that, in fact, this disparity of wealth for which they are so largely responsible, they can't escape it themselves because there's this breakdown of civic order. And again, I want to stress that this is happening all over the country. It's just that San Francisco is um, a punching bag and people are looking to it. But this is happening in all other cities around the country. Let's, let's, Along with poverty. Mm -hmm. Let's let's parse this apart a little bit. Um, sure. First of all, when I ask you whether or not this is the lowest of the low for San Francisco, you categorically yes. stated yes. So let's define what low means. And I think you already had two points. Homelessness, which goes hand in hand with poverty. Anything else? What is the definition of low? Oh, um, well, a city thrives on viable businesses, you know, mm -hmm. um, hotels that can be filled for the tourist trade, for example, um, large law firms, um, banks, um, and then retail, the department stores, et cetera. They're all pulling out, you know. So lack of viable employers. Yes. And property uh, class that would have an interest in, in further gentrifying. Well, gentrifying, that's that's a wrong thing to talk about. But keeping the city up, right? Yes. Up and a third of the offices in the financial district today are vacant. A um, third? A third. You walk down Montgomery Street, the so-called Wall Street of the West, and you look up into these buildings in midday, and you don't see many lights on them. Well, they're vacant. A lot of them are just vacant. But then what you see, a downtown is an ecosystem, and those office workers supported the people, the, the shops, the restaurants. Yeah, yeah. Many of those are closing. So what you see is boarded up storefronts and offices uh, uh, or restaurants or so, they're pulling out. Now, in the last year or so, the big department stores have started pulling out. The stores around Union Square. Like Nordstrom. Nordstrom, yeah. Um, oh, a number of the the stores. I mean, I don't know how much longer Macy's can hold on. Oh, come um, on, Macy's is like a landmark over there. I mean, if Macy's go leaves Union Square with 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 uh, um, the restaurant on top, I forget what the restaurant is. Uh, Cheesecake Factory on top of the view and the balcony. That's just oh, that's this just disaster. I think they've gone already. Oh, oh, okay, they've gone already. Oh boy, um, I may be wrong about that, mm -hmm. but. Yeah. You you know you identified homelessness slash poverty and then uh, the exodus of viable businesses, large and small. You didn't yet identify crime as uh, one of the definitions of low. No, it's all linked together. Um, the statistics show that violent crime is actually dropping, but that's not the perception of people. 
um, in San Francisco and elsewhere outside of the city, the perception is that civic order is breaking down, largely because of the visibility of homelessness, mental illness, and drug addiction, um, people defecating on the streets, et cetera, oh boy. disorder on the public transit. Um, and that's the public perception. And that's hastening uh, the evacuation of both businesses and people from the city because cities rely upon civility uh, to be viable. That means people must feel secure, they must feel safe. And if they don't, then businesses and people leave those cities. And that's what's happening to San Francisco. It's happening to other cities as well, too. It's just that it's most pronounced in San Francisco now. We're going on a tangent here, but I, I just I have to ask this question. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, I lived in San Francisco, and I've been to many other cities. Why is homelessness so connected with San Francisco? I've spent so much time in New York City, particularly Manhattan, Los Angeles, um, you know, Boston, but you know, homelessness in San Francisco has always sort of been etched in my mind, stuck with me. You, you and Plaza used to be called when I was a younger man living in San Francisco. You're in Plaza. Even this is back in the nineties, not even now. So why is homelessness so connected with San Francisco? Well, because again, San Francisco is a punching bag because um, all other cities are having huge homeless crises now too. Los Angeles has the largest homeless population in the United States. Which and is funny, everywhere. you don't hear as much about LA as you do about San Francisco. Oh, well, you just go downtown to LA, which most people don't do, yeah. let alone towards the river, and you're going to see thousands of homeless tents, you know, and then it's all over. I've seen it in the Arroyo Seco. I mean, anywhere where there's vacant land, you're going to see homeless. In San Francisco, it's just visible because San Francisco is a much more dense city. But it has to do with the price of land that, you know, I mean, the yeah. and the cost of rents that so few people can afford in San Francisco. Um, so it pushes people out onto the streets. I would say, however, that the, you know, the original sin was the closing of the state mental institutions in, well, it's 1967 to 72 when Governor Reagan began closing the state mental institutions. And, oh. um, and then you have the Supreme Court outlawing vagrancy laws um, in 1972. And so we're seeing the sort of the result of that now. But um, because we have so much untreated mental illness. And if you're not crazy when you go move out onto the streets, you're going to be crazy pretty soon. Yeah. It will make you crazy. Um, and so you have all these problems. But I think, again, it has so much to do with the disparity of wealth between the, the very wealthy who are hoovering the available money up and leaving so many people impoverished. And where do they go? They go to, onto the streets and they go to drugs. I noticed uh, you, you said, you know, disparity of wealth and you hoisted much of the blame on the wealthy, but I didn't hear you say anything about San Francisco's city government, the mayors and, the, you know, council members and what have you. Um, the job of the wealthy is to make money. When I had a startup, my job was to make money and make investors rich. I mean, that was my dream. 
Um, yes. Their job is not to take care of the poor. I mean, if they do, that's a great thing. And they should. They should, by the way. I'm not I'm saying they should abdicate that responsibility once they've made money. But why not talk about the mayor and the, the, the city council and all of that? You think they're up to blame, well, too? Uh, well, I think that they share a good deal of the blame, too. I mean, and although I'm not sure it's so much their fault. I mean, I don't I just don't see civic leadership yeah. today, even Mayor Breed. I don't see a charismatic figure like um, like Governor, like uh, Mayor Rolfe or nationally like Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, these people don't really exist anymore. And you've got a very liberal board of supervisors and they're facing a crisis of yeah. you know this very visible homelessness and disorder on the street, which is driving people and businesses out. They're trying to do the right thing by providing um, social services, but that only seems to attract more homeless to San Francisco because other cities like Phoenix, for example, Las Vegas or others, um, they're not providing social services. So they're pushing the homeless out and they will come to a place with a more equitable climate and which provides at least some um, homeless services, it's costing the city an enormous amount of money. Yeah, I remember it was in the late 80s or 90s that San Francisco sued Seattle because Seattle was buying bus tickets for its homeless to come to San Francisco. So it sort of resonates right. with what you're saying. You mentioned FDR, and I want to uh, read something um, that... Uh, you emailed me uh, before this podcast conversation. You lamented to me about, quote, civic imagination embodied in architect um, Timothy Floger and the founding of the UN, which is now largely forgotten. The horror of UN Plaza is a stark refutation of everything that the Roosevelt's hoped that the organization might achieve. That civic imagination seems to have moved south to where you are, you're, you mean me living in Southern yes. California. And then you added in your note to me, Dr. Brecken, I'd like to discuss this with you. So let's discuss it. What did you mean okay. by this uh, email that you sent, the Roosevelt's and the civic imagination? Well, the United Nations Plaza is named um, for the creation of the United Nations in San Francisco in 1945. Another event that was at the time called by some the most important meeting in the in world history. It has now been almost entirely forgotten yeah. in San Francisco, except for UN Plaza. UN Plaza is a, a so-called public space about two blocks away from San Francisco City Hall, facing on Market Street, the main thoroughfare of the city. In the 1960s, a great landscape architect um, named Larry Halprin designed that. Um, as a memorial to the United Nations. It's filled with monuments and inscriptions, um, which are incredibly idealistic about where we might go if we honored Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal for everyone, for everybody in the world. In particular, Roosevelt said in 1941 in his State of the Union address that in addition to the two freedoms um, in the First Amendment, freedom of religion and freedom of speech should now be added freedom from fear and freedom from want. And freedom from fear was based foundationally on freedom from want. We had to wipe out poverty because so many of the other pathologies 
that we're not dealing with now or making worse are are rooted in poverty. We've forgotten that. So yeah. what's happened is that the poor concentrate in United Nations Plaza. You yeah. see open-air drug dealing, shooting, defecating, uh, just incredible disorder. And it's an extraordinary rebuke of the idealism of Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt and of the United Nations at that time that it's come to this. Yeah. You know, um, it's a refutation of the future we might have had, but have forgotten that we took the wrong turn and so are now living in this dystopia, which is so evident on the streets of San Francisco and so many other American cities and in the, sh the mass shootings yeah. that we have now come to take for granted as part of American life. You know, I lived in front of the UN Plaza for almost four years, and my from my window, I could look inside the courtyard of the UN building. Um, yes. the the new library is there. I is see. That, uh, Perhaps like, that's what we're referring to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, public libraries have become um, they've become victims of this change in American society, and you can see it. In San Francisco's main library, which was designed as a kind of palace in the 1960s, but they've become de facto homeless shelters oh, with boy. all the problems. Um, you know, they need. You mean they sleep inside the library? Yes. Um, they wait at the door for it to open because it's a warm or air conditioned space. So uh, they become homeless shelters and with and they are filled with mental illness and drug addiction, and all kinds of problems that go with that. So uh, that means that a, that public space is no longer a public space because it discourages people from going and using the public library. That's a shame. We'll be back after a short break to talk about Imperial San Francisco. Hey there, news peelers. We're working on a brand new website with many super duper features including videos of our guests and compilations of our episodes into series with related blogs that are updated weekly, like series on U.S. politics, economy, health policies, environment, women's rights, and also series on many other countries like Russia, Ukraine, China, and Brazil, and the British monarchy, and also a series on revolutions and protests like those in Iran, Israel, and France. The rollout of our website will happen gradually in the next few weeks. So be sure to check it out at historybehindnews.com. And if that's too hard to remember, just go to hbnpodcast.com. That's hbnpodcast.com. See you guys there. Dr. Brecken, let's talk about your book, which is titled Imperial San Francisco, Urban Power, Earthly Ruin. <laughs> Why do you say imperial? Oh, because all great cities are imperial. They rely on an ever-expanding hinterland to feed them and to continue their growth. And so um, I'm using San Francisco um, as an example of the way I think all great cities operate. Um, the idea came to me when I was able to spend the winter in Venice. Venice is the most beautiful and ingenious city humans have ever created. But I came to realize in the time that I spent there that it became that way by raping and looting much of the Eastern Mediterranean in order to build itself. 
And the same applies to San Francisco and especially to New York City. I was actually going to write a sequel called Imperial Manhattan because the East Coast press ignored my book because they thought that it was just about a pretty city way out there west of the Hudson. Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to show how it operates in, in New York City as well, too. It could be applied to London, to Paris, to many other cities. And why do you say earthly ruin? Because cities use remote control technology, and that includes the military, to feed themselves, or rather to feed the people who own and run them, because this is all about the elites who actually call the shots and who control the mass media. The core of the book is called The Thought Shapers, about the people who shape our thought, but without our knowledge, and certainly without our consent. Um, we can come back to that. But... Um, so they it, they use remote control to draw in and steal from the hinterland, which I use. I use the Italian word contado. Um, the first thing they need is water. And San Francisco really needed it because it's built on sand dunes. There's almost no <laughs> creeks and it's surrounded by salt water. Yeah. So I the second chapter is about how it builds its aqueducts into the country, just like Rome did, uh, so that it could grow further. The second need, and probably as important, is energy. So you need lots of energy feeding into the city to keep it growing. At that time, you know, it was wood, poor coal, etc., and then it becomes electricity. And a lot of this technology grows out of mining, which has been so important to San Francisco, and then is transferred to the rest of the world. Much of Silicon Valley's technologies is actually rooted in innovations in the mining industry in the 19th century. So when you say earthly ruin, what you're referring to is that uh, essentially San Francisco is plundering natural resources from the areas around it? Yes. And an ever-expanding band. I was going to have a chapter on the forests because the forests all over California were sacrificed to build San Francisco. Um, and railroads all around the Pacific Basin because the redwood uh, redwood is so good that it's used for all sorts of things like pipes, for example, and railroad ties, et cetera, but is mainly used for building. And so those are the first to go, the redwood trees around the Bay Area and then the forests of the Sierra Nevada. But then fish, whales, um, everything is pulled into the maw of the growing city. I use the a metaphor of uh, the maelstrom uh, from Edgar Allan Poe's wonderful short story, The Descent into the Maelstrom, about how it pulls bears and wolves and trees and everything in and just absorbs it and spits them up, wasted or corpses, you know, and that's what cities do. They have a metabolism. They pull things in and then they create immense amounts of waste. But There's most a... people are not aware of that. As the city grows, it becomes more dependent on a growing hinterland, yeah. but the people become less and less aware of their dependence. They just want it. And of the waste, it's really a question of out of sight, out of mind. So what my book tries to do is put it in sight and in mind to show what the environmental consequences of growing cities are. Cities today are growing both horizontally and vertically, um, infinitely. But nobody asks, how large should they be? 
they will continue growing until they can't any longer. And climate change and diminishing resources is about to put an end to urban growth. In the minute we have left here, you and I had talked about, uh, prior to this podcast, um, San Francisco's uh, prime families, and you were, you know, you mentioned this in a prior segment, and this segment you thought about, you talked about thought shapers. Could you talk about that for a minute? Uh, what are the powerful families of San Francisco that I guess are still relevant to this day? Well, the no, the powerful cities, the powerful families of San Francisco are not evident today. In the past, they were. They were the Spreckles family, which who whose fortune was based on Hawaiian sugar, the Hearst family, and the DeYoungs. Um, and then there was another couple of brothers called the Scots who were connected with the military. Uh, and most people never heard of them. Anyway, these families owned the major news outlets, the Call, the Examiner, and the, the Chronicle. And they shaped the minds of the people within the city. What I do in my chapters in the Thought Shapers is to show what's in it for them. What else did they own? How did they use their control of mass media to um, uh, benefit themselves? And that includes raising the value of the real estate that they owned that people didn't know that they owned. To some extent, they still do. The Hearst, for example, own land south of Market Street that's being developed now with high rises. Um, but most people don't know the about these families, although at that time, Somebody like William Randolph Hearst was very flamboyant. People, yeah. Mike, they knew about them. Today, most people couldn't name those who control the mass media and control their minds, except maybe for Rupert Murdoch. Um, but otherwise, they've become largely invisible, and that's the way they want it. There's another interesting thing, too, Adele, that, um, that um, it's very important to know who owns the land, because those people have the clout at City Hall. And back about 120 years ago, uh, you could just get what was called a block book, and it would show who all the proper names of the people who owned the land in San Francisco. Today, if you can get a map that shows land ownership, and that's very difficult, you won't be able to tell because they're all hidden by corporate veils, LLCs and REITs and such. And so you can't tell who owns the land. So the land is being speculated on, but you don't know who it's being. But as I say, those the people who own the land pick up the phone down at City Hall when they call. Interesting. That's really interesting. So you don't know who's uh, who's holding the levers of power. Um, did you know, one, one, one last thing. Yeah. Those families had an investment in the city. Um, I mean, I'm a harsh critic of them in the book. But they had a sense of place. This was their city. Yeah. And they did a lot to build it up. Um, the big one of the big changes that's happened with tech is the tech bros who come up from Silicon Valley and with their incredible wealth, they don't have an investment in the place. They can live anywhere. Isn't that's what their technology is designed to do? They can be anywhere. And so they don't really You mean they don't have a sense of belonging and pride in San Francisco? Is that what you mean? That's right, because they can be anywhere. They also have, they're very ahistorical, which is why I'm so glad you're doing this show, yeah. because they really don't think that history is important. They're building or winning the future, you know. So San Francisco can't have um, a proper city 
museum like any world-class city does. It can't afford to support its art institute. It can't afford to support its city college, you know. Um, but in particular, it seems to have become very ahistorical. And I think that has a lot to do with the problems we're facing, that there is no longer this commitment to place that these old uh, aristocratic families once had. That's taking remote work uh, a step further to sort of remote connectedness, right? Lack of yes. lack of mm -hmm. connectedness. Um, I'll just end with this, you know, uh, to confirm what you were saying. The old, um, the old rich prime families in San Francisco had a sense of belonging. For example, if you look at Legion of Honor, which is over, I guess, in the Lincoln Park area which we visited a couple of years ago with my family, that was built by the Spreckles family. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So um, um, there was that sense of belonging and this is our city. Um, let's take a break here. Stay with me and Dr. Brecken as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Dr. Brecken, uh, I grew up to Journey's song, Lights, and this is my favorite line and probably is most people's favorite line, quote, I want to get back to my city by the bay, unquote. Uh, San Francisco is special to me, even though I don't live there anymore. I, I, I lived there for three and a half years. I grew up in the South Bay and ended up living uh, for many years also on the peninsula. Um, but as a younger man, a single man, I was up in San Francisco all the time, even though I didn't live there. So when I hear about San Francisco's decay, I experience a profound sense of sadness. Um, it's, it's, it's almost emotional. I'm not exaggerating experience for me, especially when I took my family there to visit a couple of years ago, all the crime and all the signs and the, the amplified presence of the police, especially in Union Square. Um, so am I alone in this? Are San Franciscans aware, keenly aware, sadly aware that this is happening? Yes, they are. Um, and it's not just San Franciscans, it's the people around San Francisco, the suburbs and all, who no longer feel that it's their city anymore, the kind of city that they remember that they want to go to. Actually, if I may interrupt you, that's exactly the point. When we went to San Francisco, I didn't feel like this was my city. That's right. This, this is not the San Francisco I remember. Well, that's a good point, because that city that you're remembering from that song by Journey is as gone as Tony Bennett's I Left My Heart in San Francisco, yeah. Scott Kenzie's. If you're coming, if you're going to San Francisco, that <laughs> city doesn't exist. Or, you know, Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. I mean, that's yeah. a wonderful movie to go to, to see that kind of city that those of us who are old enough remember, a city without high rises, with those unobstructed views. And um, it is a tragedy, you know, but it, that's true of the United States in, in uh, that it, this isn't the same country anymore that I grew up in. And San Francisco isn't the same city anymore. It's been changed drastically. And a lot of that is because of technology. But, you know, you can say that about 
any any city, any time in history. You know, I'm sure Paris in 1660 was not the same Paris as in 1720, right? But in the case of San Francisco, it's just, it's awful. Well, it is awful. Um, But, you know, I will say that sometimes when I'm in the city, it comes back to me. You just see it out of the corner of your eye. Yeah. it, it, It takes your breath away. The beauty of the setting, um, the quirkiness of the architecture and all, (laughs) it is fabulous. And it will continue to draw people in, particularly because of the fog. Oh, I love the the fog fog there. Well, the fog is unique. It's, It's such a spectacle. There's no other place in the world. And it's because of San Francisco's position by the Golden Gate. There's no other place in the world that has it. It's I never get tired of looking at it the way that the Golden Gate Bridge plays with it as the fog comes through. And that's why San Francisco is not going to totally collapse because the fog gives it this unique, equable summer-fall weather. Um, and as other cities, because of climate change, become uninhabitable, Major cities like Phoenix, Las Vegas, and others in the East Coast cities because of their humidity. They're, people are going to be drawn to San Francisco, at least those who can afford to, because it has this unique climate, which is so wonderful and pleasant in the summer. Yeah, I love um, it. Um, um, one of the best places uh, to see the fog roll in, literally roll in, is um, uh, if you look up um, UCSF uh, medical center's uh, location on Parnassus, not the new one by Mission Bay, but the one on Parnassus for our listeners and go up to the hills over there. Uh, You could literally see the fog roll in over Golden Gate Park in the city. And it's just a magnificent sight. Just take a cup of glacier. It it really is. It really is. Um, And and there are many choice places still, like I told you about our vacation staying in uh, in, uh, Presidio. Yes. Um, Mm -hmm. So I I think it it becomes awful for someone like me who has seen the glory of San Francisco and now you see the change. Um, But I think for for a tourist, there's still a lot uh, to go uh, see and visit, Um, which takes me- I'm old enough. Uh-huh. I'm 75. I'm old enough to remember the glory that was the Santa Clara Valley before it became <laughs> Silicon Valley. And that breaks my heart. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Um, I rem- yeah. I have a lot of comments. I grew up in uh, Cupertino uh, in, in, in the South Bay, and there's a lot of nice memories from those days. Does San Francisco have a future? A golden uh, one? That's difficult to say because the great imponderable is what is a big earthquake going to do to it? Um, and because I, I think you mean uh, earthquake in a literal sense. This is not a metaphor for something else. You mean yes. Okay. San Francisco is is placed between two major earthquake faults. The one to the east, the the Hayward Fault that goes through Berkeley and Oakland, is hasn't had a major earthquake in I think about 140 years. It's overdue. So we oh don't boy. know what's going to happen. And San Francisco is still a uniquely flammable city. Most of it is made out of wood. So that's the imponderable. But the other thing is, you know, I really don't know. Um, but I would say because of its unique climate and the fog and the physical beauty of its surroundings, 
I think it does have a future. I think people will always want to be in San Francisco unless civic order collapses altogether. It sometimes seems that way. But what we need is charismatic leadership like we once had with Sonny Jim Rolfe and with Franklin Roosevelt, whose whole message was we're all in this together, not there is no such thing as society and you're on your own. Yeah. Um, so that's what we need. Uh, if you want our audience to remember just one point about San Francisco, after everything we've talked about, what would it be? It's a fascinating city. And by studying it, you can actually learn about all, all other cities as well, too. That's why I wrote my book. But the question I guess I would ask people to ask themselves is, why are so many people, not just in San Francisco, but in America now, so addicted to drugs um, and alcohol? Why is there so much mental illness? This question just doesn't get asked. Is yeah. this the happiest country or city in the world? Well, by all indications, it's not. There's something desperately wrong. And so we have to ask, why are people trying to escape reality? Not just with drugs, but with sports, by enter spectacular entertainment and such. We have to ask why that is. And I think a great deal of it has to do with this phenomenal disparity of wealth, which we've come to take for granted as just wallpaper around us. It's not. By studying the New Deal, as I do, you can see we didn't have to take this course. We went off course, and we're now living in a kind of dystopia. But why did that happen? And that's why I'm so grateful to your show for asking or allowing me to ask questions like this. That was wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Brecken, uh, for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. Thank you so much, Dr. Brecken. You're welcome. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. 
I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news.